morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As Wanda said, we're in a message series we're calling a spiritual audit. Now, the purpose of an audit is to get independent verification about what is really true. Now, the spiritual CPA that I've selected for this audit is the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Now, this audit was conducted 2,400 years ago, but its conclusions still ring true today. In the opening statement of the audit, God declares his love for them and for us, his decision to love them, before any of the findings of the audit have been revealed. And that's a great relief to us because this audit is not particularly flattering either for them or for us. So God makes it clear that the findings of this audit are not at all about his love for us. That matter has already been settled. And then God proceeds to present four significant findings. And today we're going to turn our attention to the last of the four findings. And then next week we'll wrap up with some of the concluding statements that we find at the end of this audit. Here's statement number four. Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Now, if you've been tracking with us in this series, you might notice uh, a theme or a pattern emerge by now. For God, all of these findings are very personal. Listen to what he said so far. He said, you're treating me with contempt when you offer me the leftovers of your life. Then he said, you're profaning my plan to bless the world when you break relational faith, particularly in marriage. And then he said last week, you're stealing from me when you refuse to tithe. Now today, he says, you're saying harsh things against me. God is not simply pointing out moral rules that are being broken in this audit. He's describing the the common ways that we tend to turn our back against God. And sin is not just a moral decision. It is that, but more than that, it's a relationship decision that involves our relationship with God. Every sin is a personal rejection of the God who loves us. That's why these statements are very personal kind of statements. Now, a financial audit is, well, it's pretty emotionless. It's based on math. You add things up, you find errors, and you make corrections. But a spiritual audit is anything but a sterile, devoid of emotion kind of process. The Malachi audit peels back the surface of our behavior and shows us what it's like for God to watch and listen to us as we do these things. I'll be honest, there are a few books in the Bible that have shaken me more than this one. And now to hear that some of the words that I've thought, some of the words that I've said, are harsh towards God? Like them, my my first thought is, I'm not aware of speaking or thinking harsh words against God. So they ask, what have we said against you? I mean, you would expect then swear words maybe or angry, God-defying kind of words. But what they were saying is that it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements, they're saying. And God says, these are harsh words against me. They were taking the tithing test that we talked about last week where God had said, test me in this. And they had expanded it to all of life. They had taken, you know, God saying, test me in this for a period of time to test me in everything 
for all time. And in doing so, they had kind of turned their relationship to God into a kind of a vendor relationship, a vending machine almost of sorts, where you put money and service and obedience in, and then you push the buttons and you expect what you want out of it. And God said, that, that is demeaning who I am in the nature of our relationship. To do that is to treat God wrongly, harshly. Now, this harshness points to three very important questions we're going to look at this morning. The why question, why are we harsh? The who question and the what question. So first, the why question. Why do we think this way? Why do we have harsh thoughts? Well, it's because we are bottom line thinkers. We're bottom line thinkers. That's why we speak and think harsh thoughts towards God. Common to every harsh thought against God is this bottom line approach to life that we all have. Now, what is a bottom line? When I was in business and advertising, it was my job to review the monthly financial report with the owner. I was the first one to get the port report from the bookkeeper, and whenever I got the report, I would flip immediately to the last page and scan my eyes all the way down to that final number on the bottom line. Because that number let me know whether we had made money the previous month or whether we'd lost money. If it was positive, that's a good thing. If they had the dreaded parentheses around it, that was not going to be a good conversation with the owner. That's the bottom line. The number that lets you know whether you're doing good or bad, whether you've made money or you've lost money. Now, this bottom line approach is not confined just to the business world. It's really how we tend to perceive all of life. You know, we look maybe at our marriages and we ask, so what are we getting out of this? I mean, are we happier? Or are we sadder? Maybe we look at our jobs and we ask, so is all of the effort I'm putting into this job worth it? I've been here for X amount of years, and could I make more money somewhere else? Am I getting enough? Or am I getting promoted enough? Or am I learning and being challenged enough? Is this interesting enough? What, is this worth it? We don't want to just keep working a dead-end job, as we call it. If we're getting close to retirement, we might be asking, so am Am I gaining enough in that category and making those preparations? And then those of us who are parents, it's pretty easy, particularly when our kids move into the adolescent years, to start looking at the parenting ledger and wonder, is this going to work out? Is this going to pay off? I mean, all of this effort and all of this money and all of my heart in this, I, I wonder if this, is, this child is going to be okay or, or not okay. Now, we are bottom-line thinkers because we were created to do something significant with our lives. Bottom-line thinking is not wrong. It just means we're supposed to do something. We don't want to just pass time and have nothing to show for our efforts. We want to accomplish something, and that's good, and that's right. But there is a temptation that comes with bottom-line thinking, and that is that we tend to draw the bottom line before God draws the bottom line. And we... Draw the bottom line, let's say, on today. And if life doesn't add up today, and we're not getting what we think we should be getting out of life today, well, then it's pretty easy for us to turn our attention towards God and to begin to think and then to speak harsh words against Him and to blame Him. If we do what is right before God, we expect something in return. That's what they were doing. They said, what have we gained by carrying out God's requirements. Now, first you have to admit 
they are a little fuzzy on their memory of carrying out God's requirements because the audit so far has consisted of God saying, this is the problem, and of them saying, uh-uh. But still, they've been putting effort into it, and their thought was, we should be further ahead in life than we are. Their answer to this question is, we're not gaining. We're actually losing. It says we're going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty. In fact, our, our lives are characterized by sadness and mourning. And this was really true of their situation at this time in history. Life was really hard. Things were falling apart. And so they were wondering, what's the point? What are we getting out of this? What they were saying to God is, you know, if, if you look at the bottom line of our lives right now, you would see that dreaded parentheses. It's negative. And the problem is not only is their life worse than they thought it should be, other people's lives were better than they thought it should be. They looked over at people who clearly were ignoring God and his ways, and things seemed to be going a lot better for them. They were getting more than they deserved. Verse 15, rather, goes on. It says, but now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. They're saying, God, this just doesn't make sense. The arrogant are blessed. I mean, God has made it very clear throughout the pages of the Bible that he opposes the proud, and he loves to give grace to the humble. God really is drawn to humility. So they were saying, if that's true, then why are all these arrogant people's lives being so blessed? They were saying, God, I thought you loved humility. Why are you blessing these arrogant people? And then they went on to notice evildoers are prospering. So the natural question is, so why am I trying so hard to do what is right when it looks like the path to prosperity is doing what is wrong? And even those who challenge you escape, they say. God, there's, there's people that openly, by their life and by their words, they're challenging you. They're, they're defying you. They're saying you're not real and you don't even exist. And what's your response? Absolutely nothing. They're getting away with it. But me? They're saying, I'm, I've been doing what you require for years now, and what do I get? Sadness. Mourning. God, it's just not fair, they were saying. All these people who are defying you, they're, they're blessed, they're prosperous, and they're getting away with it. So what's the conclusion? Here's their conclusion. It is futile to serve God. There's no point in it. Now, the word futile has an interesting history to it. It comes from, in the, in the Hebrew language as well as our language, it comes from the image of a leaky container, which is a perfect description of what the word futile means. You know, if you were pouring your life, or water rather, into a leaky bucket, would you keep pouring? No. I mean, if you're trying to water, maybe, but if you're trying to contain water and you we're pouring water into it, and you saw it go down, you noticed there were holes, you'd stop pouring water into it. Because to continue to pour water into a leaky bucket would be what? Futile. There's no point to it. This is a great image of what they were experiencing in life. Every day, we pour out our lives. You know, we don't know how much life we get to pour out. We don't know how many days we get to pour out, but every day we pour out a little bit more. And we want something to show for our lives. That's not bad. That's just the way we are. And so we all look for buckets to pour our lives into. Something that won't be an F or a waste, rather, of our days, of our efforts. 
So we pick out career buckets that we hope will be meaningful and have something to show for it. When we get married, we, we pick out a marriage bucket, and we think we want to build a life with someone that, well, we'll have something good to show for it. And then we do parenting buckets. We want to raise kids that well, are good kids and that please God. And that's why we form relationships. We move into relationships, not just because we're looking for a spot to pour our lives, but because we want something out of those relationships. We pour into financial buckets. If there's too much leaking going on there, then we pick a different financial bucket. And if we look over the edge into our buckets and we see our efforts leaking out through the holes in the bottom, we stop pouring. We don't see the reason to keep pouring. It would be futile to keep pouring. The problem is this. There are no leak-proof buckets in life. And you know the leakiest bucket of all is people. People are really leaky. You can pour all kinds of effort into them, and then they can turn on you. You can build a great marriage, and then it can really go south. You can pour your life into your kids, and they can break your heart. God knows that in the end, all of our buckets will get kicked over, and the contents will run out. Ironically, we refer to death as what? Kicking the bucket. So when the bucket is kicked, it doesn't matter how much was in the bucket at the time. It matters where did it all go. Both what had leaked out of that bucket over the days of our life and what was in the bucket when it got kicked, when we died. What matters in the end is not the content of the bucket, but the position of the bucket. That's the big deal in life. You see, we were created to pour out our lives in service to God. That's a location question more than it is a bucket question. It's fine to pour your life into buckets. The question is, is this the bucket that God wants you to pour your life into? If it is and it leaks, then it leaks out onto the ground, onto the place where God said, here's where I want you to serve. If you're married, that's the place God wants you to serve. If you have kids, that's the place God wants you to serve. If you have a job, God may want you to change jobs. But the big question is, are you doing it in service to him? If so, even if it leaks, it's not wasted. It runs out on the ground, but it's the ground that God has said, that's where I want you to serve. So the big question in life is not how much content can we get in our buckets. Oh, may we be able to get more. But the big question is, is, is the buckets of our life positioned over where God wants them to be in service to him? And the problem with them and with us in this audit is they were treating God like a bucket himself. What are we getting out of serving you, God? When in fact, God is not a bucket. He is much, much bigger than that. But how do we, how do we have a chance at seeing that God is not a bucket, that he's bigger than this. That brings us to the second question, the who question. We talk with each other. That's what they did. You see, this struggle with what are we getting out of life is best processed outside of our own head. If you process life inside of your own head, you're going you're gonna to get crazier and crazier. 
I mean, things get pretty dark and pretty warped inside of our own minds. We need to get out of our heads to see a more accurate perspective on what's going on. So we need to talk with other people. That's a good thing. The big, big question in life is this. Who are you going to talk to? Who are you going to process life with? That makes a big difference in your perspective. Here's what they did. It was a really good thing. Malachi 3.16, the next verse. Then, so after all these accusations and all these struggles, here's what happened next. Then those who feared the Lord, what did they do? They talked with each other. And the Lord listened. And he heard. I mean, he leaned in on this. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Here's the, the problem we have whenever we bottom line God, treat him like a bucket. We miss the expansive nature of what God is doing. Our focus becomes only about us and only about today. We're reducing that all, we're reducing everything that God is doing throughout the world right now, not just in our place. You know, God's at work around the world right now, places we've never even seen. He's working here, but not just here. But when we make it all about us, and now we, we're reducing everything that he's doing throughout the world right now, and all that he's been doing throughout the flow of history, you know, there, there's a lot's been going on before we even showed up that God was doing. And all that God might do with however many days are left before he wraps up history. We're reducing all of that down to this one day and my one life. We're making us the point. Now, it's not that God doesn't care about us. It's just that you and I are not at the epicenter of all of history. It's hard for us to, in this individualistic world, even conceive but it's true. We're important, but we're not at the center. You know, if we could see time the way God does, the way it really is, we would see the pages of time, of time unfolding page by page, day by day, place by place. And we would see that the biggest opportunity of any given day is the chance for seemingly insignificant people like us to have our names written into God's great story to serve him. But instead, we're busy publishing our own self-little pamphlets about us. Because it's so hard for us to see beyond the walls of our life, especially if we're going through a particularly painful time. So how can we get outside of our heads and see life as big as it really is and God's purposes as big as they really are? Well, our best chance is in conversation with other people who have seen enough of God and what he's doing to decide to take him seriously. That's what it means to fear him. That's what the comment made about these people. They fear me, God says. It doesn't mean they're scared of him. That means they take God seriously. It's kind of like gravity. Now, I fear gravity. You know, I don't, I don't wake up in the middle of the night <gasps> scared of gravity. I just don't do gravity-defying things because I think it's real. So I, I fear it. I, I take it seriously. That's the way we need to be with God. He's as real. Actually, he's more real than gravity because he created gravity. But among people who are not perfect, but 
they really are working to take God seriously. That's who this conversation is with. Inside of our heads, life becomes all about us. We draw the bottom line on the ledger. We look only into our buckets. But it's as we gather with others who take God seriously and have conversations with those who see this, that's when our vision is expanded. On our own, we just can't see far enough. This is why two of the four parts of our strategy here at Seabreeze, you know, what we encourage people to do are connect in a group and volunteer on a team. And the real purpose behind those things is to give you and all of us the chance to form relationships with people who are also taking God seriously. I mean, in this context, attending a worship service, you're hearing some truth about God, and that's helpful. But, you know, it's not until you get to have a back-and-forth kind of conversation that things really shift in our minds. And when you connect in a growth group and when you serve on a team, you get a chance to meet some people that you might be able to have some of these conversations with. We are going to process life with someone. The big question is with who? That shapes our future. Now, it turns out God listens in on these expansive conversations of faith, and the words are entered into something called a scroll of remembrance. Now, we really don't know exactly what this is. But the amazing point is these words are so valuable and so precious that the God of the universe records them. In not just a data dump record, but in a way that they are remembered. That's amazing. What words do you think might qualify for entry into this scroll of remembrance? Let me just think about this last week. What words that you heard or maybe words that you spoke do you think might have made it into the scroll of remembrance? I mean, we don't know for sure. But what do you think would, would be elevated to that level where God says, oh, yeah, you got to write that one down? I got together with a, a group of men this past Tuesday. Some of them I've known for decades. Hadn't seen many of them for months. We got together uh, and just had a chance to catch up. During one of the breaks, one of the guys turned to me and said, I hadn't seen him in months, he said, you know, Bevan, I, I really enjoy your humor. I've missed, I've missed your humor. So do you think that's what makes it into the scroll of remembrance? My humor? Humor's great. It's a little tricky sometimes. And I'm not a particularly funny guy. He thought I was for some strange reason, but... <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't think it's humor. I'm just going to go, I don't think it's humor. I find it hard to believe that God is compiling a record of my top one-liners. <laughs> they're fine, but I just don't think they're scroll of remembrance worthy. But you know, one of the guys said something that I think just might have qualified for scroll of remembrance. You know, we were talking about different stuff, and all of a sudden this one guy said, hey, you know what, I just have to be honest. I am really struggling finding any joy in life right now. He said, I know we're supposed to be joyful. I know because of God's love for us and the future hope that we have, we should just be full of joy. But, man, life has been so hard, and this is happening with my son, and this is happening with my work. And I just, I just realized last week I don't have any joy anymore. You know what happened at that point? 
that small group of men, we all started getting real honest. Because it turns out he wasn't alone in that struggle. We all, in different ways at different times, we were struggling to find joy in the struggle of life. And as we talked about how do you find joy and what have you done and what helps you, boy, my perspective was shifted and enlarged. I don't know for sure, but I suspect it was in that conversation that God said, all right, now we're talking about it. Bevan, stop being funny and we can start being honest now. <laughs> this is good. You see, that's the kind of conversations we have, but it's so rare to come up with those nuggets, those conversations. It helped me regain perspective. It's these kinds of conversations of faith that help us see beyond us to what God is doing. That brings us to the last question, that is the what question. If life isn't about me, then what's it about? Two things, really. God's compassion and our service. Now, actually, I would say God's compassion in 38-point type in our service in 8-point type. God's compassion is what's really going to carry the day. Our service matters, but God's compassion is the big one. Here's what God says, Malachi 3, 17 through 18, the next verses. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. That's this group of people that we're talking. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion... A man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Compassion and service. So God points to this group of people who are serious about him and having these conversations. And he says, you know what? There's going to be a day. We're going to talk about this day next week. It's mentioned in chapter 4. When this life is over, And everything will be seen for what it really is, what really is valuable. And in that day, this group, they're going to be part of my treasured possession. Right now, they're not anybody's treasured possession, probably. They're just people talking. Why will they qualify for God's treasured possession? Because of what they did? Well, they were serving God, but that's not why. What's the next statement? God says, I will spare them. Hmm, That's not what we would have thought would have come next. We think it should read something like, in that day, they will finally get all that they deserve. But instead it says, in that day, I'm going to spare them from what they really deserve. That's really different than we would have thought. We really think that our good deeds, however many they are, places a demand on God to come through for us and save us in the end. But it's only because we have absolutely no idea how deep the moral hole is that we're in. We have no idea the trouble that we're in. It's so deep that after a lifetime of service, the only reason that we will ever spend eternity with God is the fact that he has spared us, that in compassion, the compassion that Lance spoke about earlier of Jesus Christ, that's the only reason that we'll be spared, God's compassion. We demand that life add up, and by that we mean God make life fair, and God says, oh, no, 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 please, please, you don't want that. You have no idea how much better your life is than 
It would be if you got exactly what you're demanding, exactly what you deserve. You don't, do not want that. We have expectations on the future. You know what an expectation is? It's a demand on the future. The truth is we have no claim on the future. We've given up our claim on the future. You know why? Sin. Sin basically sells our future away. The term in Scripture is we've sold ourselves into slavery. You decide to sell yourself into slavery, you don't get to decide what you do every day. Sin does. Our only hope in the future is that God would be merciful to us. The problem is we can't see this with our eyes. That's not the way life looks to us. To us, life is a simple ledger with debits and credits. We've been looking at this image throughout this series. This is the way, this is all we really see in life. You know, a simple ledger like this. Debits and credits, good deeds, bad deeds. The bottom line, the balance, is what happens when you add those two. And most people think, you know what, if, if I can at least come up with more good deeds than bad deeds, then I'm good. We talked about how not, not only do we, in order to stack the deck on the good deeds side, not only do we talk about doing good deeds, but if we intend to do good deeds, then that's credit itself. But it turns out that life is really more like a spreadsheet than it is a simple ledger. I'm going to take the risk that enough of you know what Excel is. If not, talk to someone after. I'll explain a little bit as much as I can. But what's the difference between a simple paper ledger and an Excel spreadsheet? Well, they look kind of similar. I mean, this one's pretty complex with colors and stuff. But when you get right down to the basic, it's, it's cells, and a ledger has cells where you enter data. But the big difference is that in a spreadsheet, there are hidden formulas behind every cell that connects every cell together and determines the bottom line balance. This is kind of the way we live our life. We live our life cell by cell, day by day, filling in the blanks with content. Some positive, some negative. What we tend to not realize is that there are formulas that are attached to every cell. And it's those formulas that will determine the finally, final value of our life and what we've done. Now, a spreadsheet has these two elements. The formula behind the cells and the data in the cells. Writing the formulas that link the cells together is much more difficult than data entry. In data entry, all you have to do is concern yourself with what you're putting in each cell. With formulas, you've got to figure out the equation that represents the desired outcome. The same thing is true for the spreadsheet of life. You know, we all want a certain outcome. But it's very difficult to figure out the formulas to get that outcome. There's too many variables. It's way too complex for us. For example, if you're a parent, have you figured out the parenting formula? If you have, monetize that spreadsheet. You can make some big money. In fact, people make a lot of money presenting at least what they present as a partial parenting formula. We gravitate towards those formulas. Really, if I do this, this, and this, my kids will turn out this way? Here's a thousand bucks. I hope it works. Those of you who are married, have you figured out the marriage formula? You know, we can get parts of it, but not all of it. 
How about the financial formula? Yeah, there's some things we know, but then there's things we don't know. Our formula attempts all tend to be vastly underestimated when it comes to the impact of sin. That's what we almost never figure in. The impact of our sin and how that affects the outcomes of life. The impact of other people's sins and how that messes with the outcomes of our life. We just don't even factor that in. That's why we think we deserve more than we really do. Now, it turns out God is the one who writes the formulas of life. He shares some of them with us, but not all of them. He shares enough in order for us to focus on data entry. You know, the single most important factor in his formula is his compassion. That's what will determine the day. Our role is to focus on data entry, not formula composition. Turns out formula composition is way too stressful for us. That's why we worry so much. You know, if you're worrying, you know why? why? You're working on formula composition. And it's just, you're not sure how to make it work. You don't know how to guarantee the outcomes. We are designed to focus our minds on each day's entries, not on controlling the bottom line outcomes. That's what Jesus meant when he said, seek me first. Do what I want done today, and all these things will be at. I'll take care of the outcomes. You take care of the day. Now, that's great news because we can do the day. The formulas, we can only do partial formulas. And so the single most important daily entry that we can make is service to God. That's why this verse talks about God's compassion and our service. You can boil all of the important things of life down to that. At the end, it's going to matter most to receive God's compassion. And the best thing that we could have ever done with our lives is in everything we do to serve God. Okay, I can do that today. Now, an obvious place of service, of course, is the church. But serving God is, is much bigger than just that. It's the why. It's to be the why behind everything we do. It's why we parent. It's why we're married. It's why we work. It's why we serve others. It's why we love people. In service to God. Not for what we get. In the end, when God draws the bottom line, as it says in this verse, we will then, we will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Right now, we can't see it. I mean, on occasion, we can get a little glimpse of the value of serving God. That's why it says we will again see it. The implication is you've, you've seen little glimmers of this. And then it faded. We often can't see enough in our current moment in time. So we look into our buckets. We don't see a reason to keep pouring our lives into that bucket. God knows that this life is not about bucket content, but bucket position. That's why he allows holes to be punched in the bottom of our buckets. So we don't live for our buckets. The main point of life is serving God, not filling up all your buckets. You know, pick out the best bucket you can. I mean, all, all things considered, don't pick a leaky bucket. You know, do the best you can. But do it in service to God so that when it does leak, it pours out on the ground where God says, yeah, here's where you need to serve. I mean, why love your spouse? Why parent your children? Why work hard at your jobs? 
not just for what you get, but for who you get to serve in the doing of those things. This life is all about getting our buckets in the right position. We have absolutely no claim on the future. And we have no right to expect God to do our bidding, no matter how reasonable it seems to us. He loves us. And in mercy, one day, he will draw the bottom line on the lives of those who have taken him seriously and sought his mercy in Christ. And in that day, we will be much more grateful for his compassion than impressed with our service. But in that day, we will be very grateful for every moment of service to him that we offered. But this side of the bottom line, we're just going to have to keep quiet, keep our harsh tongues quiet and our harsh thoughts quiet against him. And as we struggle, we're going to have to get outside of our heads and start talking with other people of faith. And then we're going to have to keep serving him day by day by day. So keep pouring into your leaky buckets. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for how your word elevates our perspective and gives us a glimpse into what really matters. We don't want to spend our lives trying to get our buckets as full as possible and then have them kicked over and realize that that really didn't matter. We want to spend our lives in service to you and dependent on your compassion. So I pray for those here today who are maybe relationally isolated. They don't really have anyone to talk to. Things are getting crazier and crazier inside their own heads. God, I pray you'd help them to see the next steps that they can take to begin to build the relationships that will allow them to talk about the real struggles of life. Father, our culture is increasingly isolated. I pray that you would rescue so many from that. We ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.